The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, well, let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. And I, I should go ahead and tell you, uh, this is a, a little bit meatier section of our our series and uh, of this chapter. So I'm going to try my best to uh, to speak quickly, and so I'll need you to listen quickly. So uh, here's what we have before us today. We have yet another um, debate of sorts between the law and the gospel. Which is better, which is right, which is... Uh, the one God wants us to follow. So here's a, a verse, one verse of Scripture from John's Gospel that kind of frames this discussion. If you remember one of the more notable chapters of John's Gospel, chapter 3, where Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus. But at the end of that chapter, John, the apostle, gives some information, a testimony of sorts. And when he gets to the end, the last verse in chapter 3, John 3.36, here's what he says. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There's two roads. There's two ways. So here's what that put me in mind of. There's an evangelistic resource available in print and on the web called Two Ways to Live. You can Google it. You can find it. It's, it's pretty helpful. Two Ways to Live. Let me read you one portion of that particular resource, Two Ways to Live. There are ultimately two ways to live. The first way to live is to continue in our rebellion against God ignoring Him and running our own lives our own way. Sadly, this is the choice that many people continue to make. The end result of living this way is the inevitable and rightful judgment of God. We not only have to put up with the damaging consequences of rejecting God here and now, but we face the dreadful prospect of an eternity of separation from Him. But there is another way. If we turn to God and ask for forgiveness, trusting in Jesus as the resurrected ruler and Savior, then everything changes. From the start, God wipes the slate clean. He accepts Jesus' death as payment for our sinful rebellion and freely and completely forgives us. He pours His own Spirit into our hearts and gives us a new life that stretches past death and into eternity. And we are no longer rebels, but part of God's own family. We now live with God's Son, Jesus, as our ruler. That way sounds way better. But those two ways to live point us to this discussion today of two paths that we might get to our destination one leads to death, one leads to life. It's the law versus the gospel once again. 
So if you'll follow along with me, I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 4 beginning in verse 8. And I'm going to go all the way to the end of chapter 4 and verse 31. The words will be on the screen where you can follow along or you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. Here's what the Apostle Paul was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 4 beginning in verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, because uh, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You've done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, but not only when I, not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under law... Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'll give us understanding of this word we've read. And as we understand, you'll help us obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this text has a lot in it, but I found that the first portion of it kind of gives us some instruction, and the second portion gives us some explanation, even some application at the end. So we're going to kind of walk through this, and I want to point out a few things if you like to take notes, this is going to be 
um, you're going to be busy. So uh, here's the first thing we see in the text today. Do not turn back to legalism. Don't turn back to legalism. In verse 8 down to verse 11, there's a compare and contrast, kind of a before and after. This is what it looked like before you knew God, and this is what it looks like now that you've known God or become known by God. So here's what it looked like. You don't know God, you're in bondage. You're enslaved to idols or false gods. When he says in verse 8, by nature are no gods, you're you're basically giving yourselves uh, under authority to something that's made up. It's not a god. This, This is idolatry at its most practical and literal sense. When you look at other, especially Eastern religions, and they are built around idolatry. They have tons of idols everywhere, and they have these man-made wooden or carved or metal or whatever images, and they see those icons as their god. They, uh, I, may, I told you the story once before of one of my friends who, when he was in seminary, he took a class on world religions, and it was up in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina, and so there's a lot of different religions represented in that area, the big city area, and they went and visited these different places of worship. And when he went to the, um, I believe it was the Buddhist temple that had all the idols everywhere, and there was a young girl, I don't know if you remember this story, And she was in the middle of the big room where all the idols were, and she was grabbing a rope that went to a bell up in the the rafters, and she was ringing the bell as hard as she could. And so my friend asked his professor, what's that all about? Why is she ringing that bell? And he said, oh, um, she's trying to wake up her idol so she can worship. Can you, can you comprehend that? The depth of misinformation, the depth of uh, idolatry to where you think you have to ring a bell to wake up a statue to worship as a god. That's not a very mighty god if, you, if they can't know that you're there. Right? You've got to ring a bell and wake them up. But that's, that's what we're talking about here. Can you imagine turning away from the creator of the universe to worship something like that? It's not even real. But these folks, before they knew God, they were in bondage, enslaved to these false gods. But then, when they came to know God, verse 9 says, or rather to be known by God, that's very important, God takes the initiative, He's in search, He's after us, He's pursuing us, and so when that happened, when, when Paul came, preached the true gospel, and people got saved, and now they were known by God, and they know God, they're no longer enslaved by the elementary things of the world. I want you to look very carefully at verse 9. Look at the words used to describe these idols. Weak and worthless. Weak and worthless. They can't justify. They come with no inheritance. But here's what Paul is pointing out to them. Remember, this is written to churches, right? So don't forget that. The audience is made up of churches, Christians. But they're, they're being led astray from their original teaching. And so Paul says, you're observing these days and months and seasons and years. So what he's talking about is, in Judaism, there's festival days, there's holy days they have to observe in order to be under the law. So that means... 
what he's saying is, if they're doing that, even though they've already heard the gospel, that means the first step to go back into legalism has already been taken. They've already taken a step away from Jesus and back toward the law, back toward, oh, I have to do these things or else I'm not righteous, I'm not justified before God. So here's the most uh, poignant verse, I believe, in this whole first section. When you read verse 11, here's what Paul says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. You know what he's saying there? Please don't miss this. Because of what they're doing, he preached the truth of Christ to them, but they're not living out the truth of Christ. So here's what he says, I fear for you that I may have labored in vain. Here's what he says. I'm scared you might be going to hell. That's how we need to understand what he just said. And and why would he make a statement like that? Why would he be fearful of laboring in vain? Here's what that really means. I preached the gospel. I didn't stutter. I was clear. You heard. You seemed to understand. You said you believed. You embraced the truth of Christ. I thought, or did you? Did you really? Was it just an emotional reaction? And I want to be really careful in what I'm about to say. There are people in hell right now that had an emotional reaction to a song or a preacher's sermon or a youth group camp or a rally somewhere and they heard a really cool speaker and they, and they were moved at the moment in their emotions. But their heart was not transformed. You, do you hear what I'm saying? This is the most serious challenge, I believe, in Christian circles. Oh, I went to this concert and I heard this awesome singer and they were talking about Jesus and it was, I was crying and it was just so amazing. Okay? Did you repent? Did you turn from your sins? Did you put your faith and trust in Christ? Has your life been transformed? Are you on a new path now? Or was it just a moment when you were moved to tears because your emotions got the better of you? And why would I say something like that? I'm not trying to offend anybody. But, but here's why. I have baptized people whose testimony to me was, well, I did this and that when I was a teenager, and I you know, went to this camp or that event, and I, I thought I was saved, but then the more I grew up and the more I understood the Bible, the more I realized I was, I was not saved. I just kind of I did this because my friend did, or I went there because I thought it was the right thing to do, and I thought my parents would be... Um, pleased with my decision. But, and they realized the Holy Spirit convicted them. They were not saved. They weren't following Jesus. They didn't belong to Jesus. They just they went to the right part of the room, shook the right person's hand, said the words off the card they're supposed to say, and all of a sudden, okay, cool, I'm going to heaven. And they never looked back. Does this, is this registering? Do you understand what I'm saying? Does this make sense? I've baptized several and that was their testimony. I thought I was saved, but it turns out I, you know, I just had a good time and it made an impression on me, but that was it. 
there, there's only one way to be genuinely converted, and that is to come to Christ in repentance and faith and trust Him alone for your salvation and your forgiveness. That, that's it. Every, every time you see in Scripture conversion, it's someone who has been convicted by the Holy Spirit, they have repented of their sins, turned away from their sins, and embraced Christ, surrendering all to Christ. That, that's what salvation looks like. It's not a, a tear from a song. It's not an emotional reaction. It's not saying a, a pre-written prayer because you're shaking the preacher's hand. That's not what salvation looks like. And so Paul is trying to tell the church, I fear for you. This is eternal business we're dealing with. I fear I may have labored in vain. So don't turn back toward legalism. Number two, don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. Paul begs the Galatians to become as he is. In other words, full faith in Christ and in his Christian liberty. He's not bound to these legalistic ways. It's an imperative command in the Greek New Testament. He's begging them, become as I am. And he reminds the Galatians that he became as they were. In other words, in order to preach the gospel. And he would say in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I became as the weak so I might reach the weak. I became as the strong to reach the strong. Those under the law so I could reach those under the law. And then he says, I, I become all things to all people that I might by God's grace save some. I want people to... And here's to, to use my, my favorite preacher's terms. I just want to take as many people to heaven with me as I can. Is that okay? Does anybody else want to do that? Does anybody else know any lost people? Do you know people that are without Christ? Maybe in your own family, maybe your friends, maybe your co-workers. Would you like them to come to Christ and be saved? Well, how do you suppose that might happen? Maybe God put you in a position to speak the words of life and truth to them. Maybe that's the only reason you're there. Maybe your job, your job's not a job. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. That's just your mission field. The job's just a, a pretext so you can share the gospel. Y'all all right? Everybody okay? You understand what I'm saying? This is serious business. Paul reminds the Galatians how he was received when the church started. They've done him no wrong. It was because he had a weakness or a, a condition, a physical condition an infirmity. And he says that you didn't look down on me because of that. You received me like an angel, even as Christ himself. And you, you had counted yourselves blessed because I preached to you. And, and he even says, uh, it kind of leads you to believe maybe he had a vision problem of some sorts because he says um, in verse 15, uh, I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So some some uh, scholars think that maybe he had a vision problem and that was his infirmity and they were so uh, accepting of him that they would have, if they could have, they would have given him their eyes, you know, just to help because he was doing them such a, an amazing spiritual service of preaching the gospel. But since the false teachers showed up, things changed. They had lost their declaration of blessedness, so to speak, when you see the change in them. You look at verse 16, Paul's perspective to the church. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So, so here's what he's asking. Would you rather I just kind of tell you what you want to hear and just let you go happily to hell? 
do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand that, that there are people all over, mostly the United States, but all over the world, if they're not told the truth of Scripture, they're just told what will make them feel good about themselves, they're going toward hell with a smile on their face, thinking everything's fine. And it's not fine. They say ignorance is bliss. That's true until you get to the judgment seat of Christ. Then that's no longer true. It's always temporary. So Paul is trying to, to show them what is going on because of these false teachers. They had filled their minds with lies. Paul had been always honest with them in his teaching. They were, but here's the, here's the problem. They weren't just turning their back on him they were ultimately turning their back on God and His Word. He's just the messenger. He's nobody special. He would be the first to say that. He called Himself the chief of sinners. So just because the messenger comes with the truth and the truth might be uncomfortable or inconvenient or maybe even painful, don't shoot the messenger. Consider the message. Number three, consider your teacher's attitude. See, these false teachers had impure motives. They were in hot pursuit of these Galatian Christians. They wanted to alienate them from Paul's teaching so they'd have to come back and seek the Judaizers, these false teachers. It's, a, it's an illusion. It's a, it's a, I'm going to advertise some, some false benefits, some temporary false benefits, but I'm not going to dare tell you uh, the consequences. Let me, let me put it in practical, worldly terms. It's like the illusion or the seduction of an affair, an extramarital affair. The other woman tries to lure a man away, or the other man tries to lure a woman away from their spouse. And it's all the advertisement of the short-term temporary benefits, but it's never an advertisement of all the harmful consequences. Do you realize that if at the beginning of a... Uh, uh, an affair like that? Did you know if the person held up a sign and said, hey, why don't you come over here and be with me? Let me tell you what will happen. You lose your spouse, you lose your children, you might lose your job, you have all kind of trouble, and you'll sin against God. Come on over. Uh, no, thank you. But that's not the advertisement, is it? It's always the advertisement of the temporary so-called positives. But it's never true. The grass always looks greener on the other side. You know why? Because it's full of manure. You don't believe me? Go look in your yard. The grass is always greener over the septic tank. Tell me I'm lying. That's the truth, by the way. That's the truth. That's not just a funny illustration. That's the truth. Paul hopes and wishes that the desire for the gospel by these Christians was as strong now as it was when he was there at the beginning. But it's not. They've been led astray. And see, Paul's motives were always pure with the church. He refers to them compassionately as my little children. He compares himself to a mother in the midst of birth pains. He's, he's struggling with them. 
and he longs for these Galatians to be transformed into the image of Christ, like Romans 8.29. And he had not come to build them up in his own personal following. He'd come to preach the truth of Jesus, unlike the false teachers. And he wishes he was there with them. He calls them, like verse 19, My children, I'm in labor until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present. And then in verse 20 he says, I'm, I'm perplexed about you. I'm confused by your behavior. I'm not sure how to react. So what, what happens? He goes through this Old Testament explanation. Number four, what are the facts? What are the facts of the church, the people who know Christ? Understand what the law is really saying. In other words, if you're going to be governed by the law, you need to know the law. And Paul always will say when he quotes the Scriptures, for it is written, because God's Word was Paul's authority. And so now he gives this picture of two sons, two mothers, two births, two covenants. He talks about Ishmael and Isaac. You had Abraham and Sarah. Remember God promised back in Genesis when He made the covenant with Abraham, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the sand on the shore, the stars in the sky. You won't be able to count them. And He says, all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That's a promise. The promise of God. So Paul paints this picture and gives them a little history lesson. Consider the two sons, the two mothers, the two births. Genesis 16 Ishmael's born. Genesis 18, Isaac is promised. Genesis 21, Isaac is born. But what was the difference? How was Ishmael born? By man's manipulation. Sarah got impatient and said, Well, we're too old. I mean, I know what God said and all, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. So, hey, why don't you take my servant girl here, Hagar, why don't you have a baby with her and then I'll be considered the mother and so we'll, we'll do things that way. She's, obviously God's not going to come through so I guess we'll just have to do this on our own. That's the lack of faith. So Ishmael was born. According to the flesh, the ordinary way required no miracle whatsoever. But then Isaac, the son of promise, Isaac was conceived by Sarah in her old age. Although the Bible's very careful. You can tell Moses was like uh, diplomatic when he wrote this, right? I know he's been inspired by God. He's like, Abraham was old and good as dead, and Sarah was well advanced in years. Yeah, okay. Can't say that the woman's old. She was old. She was beyond childbearing age. But yet Isaac was born... Through the promise of God, Sarah was, was advanced in years and barren, said to be barren, and it required a miracle of God. And that's exactly what happened. So Isaac was the son of promise. So now there's two things we need to consider about these facts. First, what does it mean? What does it mean? The women represent two covenants. It's allegorically speaking, but not in the traditional sense because the story was historically true as well as symbolic. He talks about Mount Sinai where the law was given, the children born into slavery. So the, the mother, Hagar, represented the law, which means her children were born into slavery. 
The second covenant, however, was Mount Calvary, not Mount Sinai, because the second covenant had to do with the promise of God, which ultimately points us to Christ. So this is implied in verse 24, the contrast to the law. So Sarah was the, the, the free woman representing the gospel, which means her children would be free under Christ. The women represent the two cities. Hagar represents first century Jerusalem, which was enslaved to Rome, in slavery to the law. But Sarah represents the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the mother of all the children of grace, and one day will come forth as this new Jerusalem. It's the city of the living God, home of the de departed believers of all ages. So now, Paul in verse 27 quotes from the scripture that I read at the very beginning of our service today. From Isaiah 54. In verse 27, he, re he quotes verse 1. Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. That's Sarah. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. In other words, Sarah, your son is the son of the promise of God. And there's a, a promise that God made to Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you through this Son. And so it's no coincidence that when you get to Genesis 22 and you read the story of Abraham being told to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his only son, and Abraham's looking at God like, Are you serious? I waited all this time to see the evidence and the, the culmination of your promise, and now you want me to take that very same son and go up here and sacrifice him? I just don't get it. My head's about to explode. I don't understand. Why would I do that? Right? That's a human reaction. But he does it. And by the way, if you go back to Genesis 22, and you read that story, there is no information between the verse where God tells Abraham to go and the verse where Abraham got up and went. It's not like, well, I need to think about this for a few weeks. No. God told him, he went. He believed God. And you know how the story ends. God provided the sacrifice because Abraham was faithful and he believed God. So when we get here to this part of the passage here, almost at the end, the significance of Isaiah 54 in light of Isaiah 53. You can't read Isaiah 54 and ignore the fact that when, when God inspired Isaiah 53 and He talked about this suffering servant who was going to come and accomplish this redemption. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4, Surely our griefs... He Himself bore our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds, His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered it? He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked. 
Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And if, if, in case you don't understand that this is truly the plan of God from beginning to end, please take note of Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. But what's the promise? He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, when you get to Isaiah 54 and Paul quotes these verses, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. The Lord God has called you. See, in all these things, it's faith in God, faith and belief in Christ. That's what makes the difference. That's how we become righteous. That's how we're justified. It's not by legalism and law-keeping. It's because of the promise of God in Christ. That's what this means. Now, finally, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me? Four things that are applied and and illustrated for us in this text. First of all, and I'm just going to say these, they're not on the screen. Christians, just like Isaac, are children of promise. If you're a Christian, if you have believed God and His Word and trusted in Christ, you're a child of promise. You have a supernatural birth, you have a promise of salvation, and you are adopted into a new family. Christians are children of promise. Also, Christians, just like Isaac, are persecuted. Christians are persecuted. Ishmael mocked Isaac when he was born because he assumed, as the older brother, he was going to be the heir to the estate. And the false teachers assumed that they're going to be heirs of eternal life through their legalistic self-effort. So they mocked true believers, just like these Judaizers were doing to these Galatian Christians. And Paul's persecution with very few exceptions, you know who it came from? Jews. Jews who were in bondage to the law. And they persecuted Paul because of his Christian liberty he had in Christ. Children of promise were persecuted. Christians also must cast out the false teachers. Verse 30 the end of our text. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Genesis 21 is the quote here. And in the context of verse 30 here in Galatians, Sarah saw Ishmael mocking Isaac, so she told Abraham, hey, get rid of that woman and her son. Get them out of here. They're talking about my other boy. So cast out. Because observance of the law does not bring an inheritance in the family of God. So you know what we need to do? Christian churches, we need to be on our guard. We need to be paying attention to the teaching and the doctrine we hold. We don't need to just, well, whatever somebody says, I, okay, I'll just believe that. No. Why, why do you think I'm always telling you, pick up your Bible, follow along, pay attention and for the love of God and all that is holy, do not trust me to tell you the truth. Now, am I going to tell you the truth? Yes. With every fiber of my being, I am here to tell you the truth. 
But how are you going to know if you don't follow the Word? The way you trust me is you check my words and make sure they line up with what God says. I hope I've made that clear enough. Because I'm a sinner too, and I can mess up. I'm not going to do it on purpose, but I, I could. So you need to be paying attention. You need to be a good Berean. Look it up. It's in Acts. We need to be diligent to check the teaching and doctrine we hold to. So Christians are children of promise. Christians are persecuted. Christians have to cast out the false teacher, but also Christians are children of the free woman, which means we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's who we are. Verse 31, we are not children of the bondwoman. We are children of the free woman. We are children by extension of Jesus Christ. And there is no better standing to have than being a child of the King. So we need to pray that God would hold us onto this path that follows Christ and His Word and doesn't allow us to, to vary one way or the other or to veer off into to false teaching. Because here's what we need today, more, more than any other time maybe in, in the history of at least this nation we're in. We need ministers of God who are not going to turn and run at the first sound of opposition. People who are not going to sacrifice the truth of Christ because they'd rather be popular. Or they'd rather, well, I'm not really here because I, I love this church. I just, I'm thinking maybe if I stay here a while, maybe I can get a bigger church and more people and all, you know. No. No. That, believe me, every one of you in this room is more than enough that I'll have to answer for when I stand before God. We need ministers, teachers, who are going to stand their ground until Christ is completely formed in the precious souls given to their charge. So that means we have a lot of work to do, and it doesn't come easy. But I'm, I'm here to tell you the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts, but it's still true. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.